This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche. Chapter 10 Things I Owe to the Ancients. 1. In conclusion, I will just say a word concerning that world to which I have sought new means of access, to which I may perhaps have found a new passage, the ancient world. My taste, which is perhaps the reverse of tolerant, is very far from saying yea through and through even to this world. On the whole, it is not over-eager to say yea, it would prefer to say nay, and better still, nothing whatever. This is true of whole cultures. It is true of books. It is also true of places, and of landscapes. Truth to tell, the number of ancient books that count for something in my life is but small, and the most famous are not of that number. My sense of style, for the epigram as style, was awakened almost spontaneously upon my acquaintance with Sallust. I have not forgotten the astonishment of my respected teacher, Corsen, when he was forced to give his worst Latin pupil the highest marks. At one stroke I had learned all there was to learn. Condensed, severe, with as much substance as possible in the background, and with cold but roguish hostility towards all beautiful words and beautiful feelings. In these things I found my own particular bent. In my writings up to my Zarathustra there will be found a very earnest ambition to attain to the Roman style, to the Ere Perennius in style. The same thing happened on my first acquaintance with Horace, up to the present, no poet has given me the same artistic raptures as those which from the first I received from a Horatian ode. In certain languages it would be absurd even to aspire to what is accomplished by this poet, this mosaic of words, in which every unit spreads its power to the left and to the right over the whole, by its sound, by its place in the sentence, and by its meaning this minimum in the compass and number of the signs, and the maximum of energy in the signs which is thereby achieved. All this is Roman, and, if you will believe me, noble par excellence. By the side of this, all the rest of poetry becomes something popular, nothing more than senseless sentimental twaddle. 2. I am not indebted to the Greeks for anything like such strong impressions. And to speak frankly, they cannot be to us what the Romans are. One cannot learn from the Greeks. Their style is too strange, it is also too fluid, to be imperative or to have the effect of a classic. Who would ever have learnt writing from a Greek? Who would ever have learnt it without the Romans? Do not let anyone suggest Plato to me. In regard to Plato, I am a thorough skeptic, and have never been able to agree to the admiration of Plato the artist, 
which is traditional among scholars. And after all, in this matter, the most refined judges of taste in antiquity are on my side. In my opinion, Plato bundles all the forms of style pell-mell together. In this respect, he is one of the first decadents of style. He has something similar on his conscience to that which the cynics had, who invented the Satura Menippie. For the Platonic dialogue, this revoltingly self-complacent and childish kind of dialectics, to exercise any charm over you, you must never have read any good French authors. Fontanelle, for instance. Plato is boring. In reality, my distrust of Plato is fundamental. I find him so very much astray from all the deepest instincts of the Hellenes, so steeped in moral prejudices, so pre-existently Christian. The concept good is already the highest value with him. That rather than use any other expression, I would prefer to designate the whole phenomenon Plato with a hard word, superior bunkum, or, if you would like it better, idealism. Humanity has had to pay dearly for this Athenian having gone to school among the Egyptians, or among the Jews in Egypt. In the great fatality of Christianity, Plato is that double-faced fascination called the ideal, which made it possible for the more noble natures of antiquity to misunderstand themselves, and to tread the bridge which led to the cross. And what an amount of Plato is still to be found in the concept church, and in the construction, the system, and the practice of the church. My recreation, my predilection, my cure, after all Platonism, has always been Thucydides. Thucydides, and perhaps Machiavelli's Principe, are most closely related to me, owing to the absolute determination which they show of refusing to deceive themselves, and of seeing reason, in reality, not in rationality, and still less in morality. There is no more radical cure than Thucydides for the lamentably rose-colored idealization of the Greeks, which the classically cultured stripling bears with him into life, as a reward for his public school training. His writings must be carefully studied, line by line, and his unuttered thoughts must be read as distinctly as what he actually says. There are few thinkers so rich in unuttered thoughts. In him the culture of the sophists, that is to say, the culture of realism, receives its most perfect expression. This inestimable movement in the midst of the moral and idealistic knavery of the Socratic schools, which was then breaking out in all directions. Greek philosophy is the decadence of the Greek instinct. Thucydides is the great summing up, the final manifestation of that strong, severe positivism which lay in the instincts of the ancient Hellene. After all, it is courage in the face of reality that distinguishes such natures as Thucydides from Plato. Plato is a coward in the face of reality. Consequently, he takes refuge in the ideal. Thucydides is a master of himself. Consequently, he is able to master life. 3. 
to rout up cases of beautiful souls, golden means, and other perfections among the Greeks, to admire, say, their calm grandeur, their ideal attitude of mind, their exalted simplicity. From this exalted simplicity, which, after all, is a piece of niaiserie allemande, I was preserved by the psychologist within me. I saw their strongest instinct, the will to power. I saw them quivering with the fierce violence of this instinct. I saw all their institutions grow out of measures of security calculated to preserve each member of their society from the inner explosive material that lay in his neighbor's breast. This enormous internal tension thus discharged itself in terrible and reckless hostility outside the state. The various states mutually tore each other to bits, in order that each individual state could remain at peace with itself. It was then necessary to be strong, for danger lay close at hand. It lurked in ambush everywhere. The superb suppleness of their bodies, the daring realism and immorality which is peculiar to the Hellenes, was a necessity, not an inherent quality. It was a result. It had not been there from the beginning. Even their festivals and their arts were but means in producing a feeling of superiority and of showing it. They are measures of self-glorification, and, in certain circumstances, of making oneself terrible. Fancy judging the Greeks in the German style from their philosophers. Fancy using the suburban respectability of the Socratic schools as a key to what is fundamentally Hellenic. The philosophers are, of course, the decadence of Hellas. The counter-movement directed against the old and noble taste, against the agonal instinct, against the police, against the value of the race, against the authority of tradition. Socratic virtues were preached to the Greeks, because the Greeks had lost virtue. Irritable, cowardly, unsteady, and all turned to play-actors. They had more than sufficient reason to submit to having morality preached to them. Not that it helped them in any way, but great words and attitudes are so becoming to decadence. 4. I was the first who, in order to understand the ancient, still rich, and still superabundant Hellenic instinct, took that marvellous phenomenon, which bears the name of Dionysus, seriously. It can be explained only as a manifestation of excessive energy. Whoever had studied the Greeks, as that most profound of modern connoisseurs of their culture, Jakob Burkholt of Bale, had done, knew at once that something had been achieved by means of this interpretation. And in his Kultur der Griechen, Burkholt inserted a special chapter on the phenomenon in question. If you would like a glimpse of the other side, you have only to refer to the almost laughable poverty of instinct among German philologists when they approach the Dionysian question. The celebrated Lobeck, especially, who with the venerable assurance of a worm dried up between books, crawled into this world of mysterious states, succeeded in convincing himself that he was scientific, whereas he was simply revoltingly superficial and childish. Lobeck, with all the pomp of profound erudition, gave us to understand that, as a matter of fact, 
there was nothing at all in these curiosities. Truth to tell, the priests may well have communicated not a few things of value to the participators in such orgies. For instance, the fact that wine provokes desire, that man in certain circumstances lives on fruit, that plants bloom in the spring and fade in the autumn. As regards the astounding wealth of rites, symbols, and myths which take their origin in the orgy, and with which the world of antiquity is literally smothered, Lobeck finds that it prompts him to a feat of even greater ingenuity than the foregoing phenomenon did. The Greeks, he says, Agleophamos, 1, page 672, quote, When they had nothing better to do, laughed, sprang, and romped about, or, inasmuch as men also like a change at times, they would sit down, weep, and bewail their lot. Others then came up who tried to discover some reason for this strange behavior, and thus, as an explanation of these habits, there arose an incalculable number of festivals, legends, and myths. On the other hand, it was believed that the farcical performances, which then perchance began to take place on festival days, necessarily formed part of the celebrations, and they were retained as an indispensable part of the ritual. Unquote. This is contemptible nonsense, and no one will take a man like Lobeck seriously for a moment. We are very differently affected when we examine the notion Hellenic as Winkelmann and Goethe conceived it, and find it incompatible with that element out of which Dionysian art springs. I speak of orgiasm. In reality, I do not doubt that Goethe would have completely excluded any such thing from the potentialities of the Greek soul. Consequently, Goethe did not understand the Greeks. For it is only in the Dionysian mysteries, in the psychology of the Dionysian state, that the fundamental fact of the Hellenic instinct, its will to life, is expressed. What did the Hellene secure himself with these mysteries? Eternal life, the eternal recurrence of life, the future promised and hallowed in the past, the triumphant yea to life, despite death and change, real life conceived as the collective prolongation of life through procreation, through the mysteries of sexuality. To the Greeks, the symbol of sex was the most venerated of symbols, the really deep significance of all the piety of antiquity. All the details of the act of procreation, pregnancy, and birth gave rise to the loftiest and most solemn feelings. In the doctrine of mysteries, pain was pronounced holy. The pains of childbirth sanctify pain in general. All becoming and all growth, everything that guarantees the future, involves pain. In order that there may be eternal joy in creating, in order that the will to life may say yea to itself in all eternity, the pains of childbirth must also be eternal. All this is what the word Dionysus signifies. I know of no higher symbolism than this Greek symbolism, this symbolism of the Dionysian phenomenon. 
in it the profoundest instinct of life the instinct that guarantees the future of life and life eternal is understood religiously the road to life itself procreation is pronounced holy it was only christianity which with its fundamental resentment against life made something impure out of sexuality it flung filth at the very basis the very first condition of our life five the psychology of orgasm conceived as the feeling of a superabundance of vitality and strength within the scope of which even pain acts as a stimulus gave me the key to the concept tragic feeling which has been misunderstood not only by aristotle but also even more by our pessimists tragedy is so far from proving anything in regard to the pessimism of the greeks as schopenhauer maintains that it ought rather to be considered as the categorical repudiation and condemnation thereof the saying of yea to life including even its most strange and most terrible problems the will to life rejoicing over its own inexhaustibleness in the sacrifice of its highest types this is what i called dionysian this is what i divined as the bridge leading to the psychology of the tragic poet not in order to escape from terror and pity not to purify oneself of a dangerous passion by discharging it with vehemence this is how aristotle understood it but to be far beyond terror and pity and to be the eternal lust of becoming itself that lust which also involves the lust of destruction and with this i once more come into touch with the spot from which i once set out the birth of tragedy was my first transvaluation of all values with this i again take my stand upon the soil from out of which my will and my capacity spring i the last disciple of the philosopher dionysus i the prophet of eternal recurrence the end the hammer speaketh why so hard said the diamond once unto the charcoal are we then not next of kin why so soft o my brethren this is my question to you for are ye not my brothers why so soft so servile and yielding why are your hearts so fond of denial and self-denial how is it that so little fate looketh out from your eyes and if ye will not be men of fate and inexorable how can ye hope one day to conquer with me and if your hardness will not sparkle cut and divide how can ye hope one day to create with me for all creators are hard and it must seem to you blessed to stamp your hand upon millenniums as upon wax blessed to write upon the will of millenniums as upon brass 
harder than brass, nobler than brass. Hard through and through is only the noblest. This new table of values, O oh my brethren, I set over your heads. Become hard. Thus spake Zarathustra, Book 3, Section 29. End Twilight of the Idols Or How to Philosophize with the Hammer By Friedrich Nietzsche Anthony M. Ludovici Translator This recording is in the public domain.